Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Today's guest is John Wimbish, head of the middle school at Harvard Westlake. In this episode, John takes us back to March 2020 and the week that changed everything. From on Tuesday, March 10th, telling the middle school faculty, quote, so there's this thing called Zoom, end quote, to the school's entire mode of instruction being shifted to Zoom just six days later. What did those days in between look like? And how did the school's unsung heroes, names like Mike Greer and Jeff Snap, enable the school to pivot on a dime in such a fundamental way? John also speaks about growing up in Huntington Beach. A three-sport athlete at Huntington Beach High, John was recruited to Princeton for football before eventually finding his way to Princeton Volleyball. A constant for John, however, was the presence of inspiring English teachers, like Harry Gordon, the high school instructor in whose class John decided, I want to do that with my life. Or Larry Danson, the college English professor who told John, don't do what I do, go teach adolescence. And then finally, his most profound influence, Mark Wimbish, John's father, who is also, quite fittingly, a high school English teacher. This is The Supporting Cast. John Wimbish, welcome to The Supporting Cast. It's great to be here. Thank you, Eli. Oh, you're welcome. So first, I want to start with you and the present. Obviously, we're in, amid this pandemic, and life has changed, certainly at Harvard Westlake's Middle School, and, and changed for us personally. How are you and your family, how are you and Amanda and your kids sort of surviving during this anxious time? Yeah, we're, we're hanging in there. Uh, it's been quite an adventure going back to last March and when our world's kind of turned upside down, school closure certainly being what it was, and then having to retreat into the home and figure out our various locations for Zooming and our new routines and and all the rest. There's been upside as well, right? Getting to have lunch with your family, getting to have more consistent dinners together, finding new activities to pass the time and and new things that you have time to to do together that you didn't before. We do a lot more baking now. We've been doing a lot more puzzles. We've been yeah. finding binge-worthy television programming and those kinds of things. And, and we are incredibly fortunate that our health has been in good stead during this time. That's been essential. So there, there's been some good sides. Obviously, we are looking forward to the time when we can get back out into the world and especially the kids get back to their athletics and, yeah. uh, and all the rest. But we're, we're hanging in there. That's great to hear. And you mentioned the big pivot sort of back in March of 2020. You were obviously leading the middle school at that time as well. And I'd love to kind of first take us back to that week where we announced on a Wednesday, I believe, that students had to go home and wouldn't be coming back to school the next day. As I recall, students were were elated at the time because they thought, oh, we get a sort of a, a sick day. It's a rainy day. It's a snow day. We get to spend the day at home. They had no idea, of course. And a lot of us faculty and administrators were watching them going, they have no idea that they might not see their friends for a while. So there was that sort of announcement. And then by Monday, 
we were a virtual school. So I, I want to kind of take you from your lens as head of the middle school. What were all of the sort of decision points and then the changes that had to be made just over a few days to kind of turn Harvard-Westlake virtual? Well, you, you captured it really well in talking about the speed of that week. That's the thing yeah, that I recall right. of just how quickly things unfolded over the course of you know hour to hour, minute to minute. That Tuesday of that week, we had had yeah. a faculty meeting. And I can remember saying to the faculty, here's the latest update on the considerations about health and safety. I can remember saying there's this thing called Zoom, which is the uh, you know, gold standard in video conferencing that we are exploring you know, might be something we could use in the future for online school if we had to go that route. And then it was the next day that we decided wow. to cancel school. And I can remember being in a meeting with the deans and counselors because I, I knew that that word was going to go out and I wanted to give them the heads up so they could be as supportive to their students as possible and families who were going to have limitless questions. And we were in the uh, conference room when the email from Rick went out and we could hear the roar from the commons of the students who right. were, right, as you said, celebrating this cancellation of school. We had students literally dancing on the tables uh, in the commons because they didn't fully conceive of, and none of us fully conceived of, exactly what this meant. And, and as you may recall at the time, we were thinking, well, maybe we'll be back after spring break. Right. Maybe this right. could just be a couple weeks to kind of get our bearings and figure out what our next steps are. And, and it lasted much longer than that. And, and then the Thursday, the day that after we had canceled, we had teams of teachers coming in to learn how to teach their classes on Zoom and learn all the functionality. And at that time, of course, Zoom itself was trying to catch up to this new explosion into the education space. Right. And, and then on Monday, we launched with a full online school, uh, which was really remarkable that our faculty who are really good at what they do and really well-trained and really experienced were able to completely reinvent themselves, reinvent their classes. And the immediate feedback was remarkable in terms yeah. of how engaged the students felt and how well taken care of and how resilient and perseverant our teachers and our students were with trying something new and giving it a go and learning from mistakes. It, it, real source of pride for me as a, as a school leader because this is not something that any of us had experience with. There's yeah. no handbook to follow. And you have to, to trust that you have good people who are dedicated to give it their all. And that's that's what Harvard Westlake faculty are all about. Yeah, I'm curious about that Thursday and Friday. Because that week, as you mentioned, Monday, interestingly, Advancement had a big event planned in the evening with hundreds of people going to a local museum as a thank you event that we thought was going to happen that morning. You know what I mean? Think about a large crowd. And we had to cancel, of course. And then Tuesday, you have that meeting with the faculty. Oh, there's this thing called Zoom. Wednesday, the email goes out that uh, school is going to be closed for the next few days. So I'm curious about the Thursday and Friday, kind of the training of the faculty and staff. Because if, if faculty and staff hadn't heard of Zoom a few days earlier and then had to transform their entire curriculum to this online medium, what were the types of things that were being shared? What were the questions being asked? What were the... Um, kind of directives to folks? How, how could they possibly be prepared in a few days to teach that way? Well, it, it, it fell predominantly to Mike Greer, who is a middle school math teacher, uh, also yeah. teaches in the upper school ICER department and is our middle school coordinator of kind of instructional technology. Okay. He very quickly taught himself Zoom and a lot of the functionality of it. And then each department had an hour 
segment of time where they would come in and they would study with Mike and run practice classes and figure out all the settings for how Zoom would work and explore the functionality of how students will talk to each other or you know how they were muted using breakout rooms, all of that yeah, functionality that we right. had to learn. And so departments would have that time together and then they could discuss separately. I can remember as a member of the English department going to our training and that went a long way toward the introduction of people to this platform. And then of course, over the next three days, there was a tremendous amount of exploration and sharing and practice classes and people trying to figure out how to replicate what usually happens in person into an online format. Well, what are the things that carry over? What are the things that Zoom allows for that we, we've actually, that, that are new to us and that, that allow yeah. us to do things that we weren't able to do in person? And I'm still seeing a lot of that as I do classroom observations now with teachers who are finding really creative ways to use the chat or breakout rooms or reactions or even physical movement within their Zoom screens that is you know, actually making some improvements on the classroom experience in terms mm. of engagement. So those two days were really focused on understanding the new platform. And so we, when we rolled it out on Monday, we were ready to go. And so even, even before that, I should say too, when I had introduced the idea of Zoom at the faculty meeting on Tuesday, we had some teachers on that Wednesday, myself included, who actually tried it in live classrooms. So I had a class that morning where I said, we may be using this, this new platform called Zoom. Let's try it out. We were able to try it live. And it's comical um, now when I think back of what that class looked like and what my class now look like. No, I didn't record it. Thankfully, no, it was, I it didn't is... know how to record it yet. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. Um, yeah. Not on purpose anyway. I might have tried it yeah. recording by accident. But to think where we started and where we are now, it's, uh, uh, we're light years from, from where we began back then. But really do credit Mike Greer in particular, Jeff Snap, of course, and all the work that he does yep, as yep. director of institutional technology. This was not what they expected their job to be either, and yet they were willing to dive in. Well, and it's worth both Jeff uh, and Mike, the entire campus was sort of then focused on them as resources. I know even in the advancement office, when we were doing virtual events and things and trying to turn a lot of our programming virtual, we were turning to Jeff Snap as well, just like many teachers were for advice about different types of, of Zoom functionality and so forth. So a lot of pressure ended up on those folks. Right. So now it's been, we are nearing a year from that week in March as we head into late February. And obviously a lot has changed since then. And so I'm curious about kind of first the lens of students and then maybe later the lens of teachers, kind of what this last year has looked like. You said you've done a lot of classroom observations You've obviously been in touch with a lot of parents and a lot of students. I guess from the student perspective, what are kind of the biggest challenges that you've seen over the last year in, in kids being remote? Well, certainly the, the first challenge that comes to mind is just the physical isolation from people. When a class ends and the teacher pushes end on the Zoom, right, you just poof, gone. And there you yeah. are in yeah. your space, wherever you are in your bedroom at the dining room table wherever you're zooming from and and you are there alone and that's that's hard for students who feed off of the energy of of one another really whether you're an introvert or an extrovert we've we've heard from students who said I thought this was going to be great because I'm an introvert yeah, and, and right. um, but I really need to be around people so that's the first thing that comes to mind it also stripped away much of the some of the favorite things that, that our students love about Harvard-Westlake, the, the extracurriculars, the activities. Not that 
students don't love their science classes and their yeah. world language classes and all the rest, but those other things that make up for the kind of Harvard Westlake experience that that they're missing out on. So that that's been particularly hard. And then just the dragging it out, right? We go from from students dancing on the tables in the commons to yeah. realizing, oh my goodness, this is this is not fun. This is I, I, this is scary. This is anxiety producing, and so they're really wrestling with mental health and anxiety yeah. and some depression. And so there are students who, who have kind of slid, as probably we all have during this time, kind of slid backwards a little bit in their well-being. Yeah, I've heard from school psychologists uh, that we talked to at one point said that one thing this pandemic and distance learning has created is if you had particular issues prior, like you had issues staying organized, for example, which is a very common thing for students of a certain age, that it made some of these issues more profound. I think that's right. That uh, that if you were a student that had trouble sort of connecting with other kids, this this sort of made it worse. I think that's right, and and I think that we're seeing that, and the methods for that we have used when we're in person to reach those students now yeah. are strained because it's has to be more intentional. Right where a dean yeah. might linger outside a student's classroom as they exit, and hey, can we walk and talk for a minute? Or I just wanted to check in for a minute. And you're there physically, uh, and it's easy, and it's just a you know, or a student who's in the lounge that you want to call into your office for a second and have a chat with. It's different now that you have to be so intentional about well, let's set up a time to talk. Let's I'm going to send you this link. Click on this link. Right, students who struggle with executive functioning. Yeah. They are also the students maybe who aren't checking their email as regularly, maybe right. aren't as on top of their schedule and remembering appointments as they could be. And that right. has been something that our counselors, that our deans, Jen Gabriel, our learning specialist, has really tried to combat and, and are putting a lot of energy into trying to reach students and having limited success in being able to do that. Same thing with students meeting with their teachers, which is another crucial part of being a Harvard Westlake student and getting the most out of that teacher-student relationship. And now it has to be so much more intentional. And we're trying to find ways where teachers are opening kind of open office hours. We have afternoon yeah. homework hour, for instance, where students can drop in. Deans are doing the same thing with deans' lunches and trying to find connection points for them to get the help that they need. But it's it's not easy. Certainly that that is a has not been an area where we have seen advantages to being on Zoom. I guess on the positive side, what have you seen this year that's sort of made you smile, made you go, wow, I never thought that in distance learning or in a virtual school, kids would be able to do this? Kind of what are the, what are the I don't know if they're silver linings, but the things that surprised you and made you smile? All, all kinds of things from what I'm seeing in the performing and visual arts, the work that's coming out of that, which I know involves know-how and technique and filming and re-recording and some of the work that they've been putting out has is, is been really uplifting to me to see kids who are still singing, who are still playing their instruments, who are still drawing and painting and sculpting. That's been encouraging to know that students are, are still doing that at home. I think of our, the explosion of the number of clubs that have been meeting, and we've never had this many clubs on campus. It's never wow. been easy. It's never been as easy to go to clubs. Right now, you just click a link, and boom, you're there with the wildlife club, or the anime club, or the BLACC, and and so there is more connection happening that is student driven, which is which mm. is a good thing. And students are putting out their interests into the world and finding 
their people who have like yeah. interests. That's been a real plus. And I wonder too if there is ultimately an advantage long term in the recognition of what we had taken for granted and hmm. how much, you know, again, to, to contrast, I keep coming back to this image of the student dancing on the table, but to understand what a special thing it is for us to have yeah. a school like Harvard right. Westlake, to have a place that we share, to have a community that builds us up where we feel like we belong, a social environment that is keeping our spirits up, all, all of those things that come with the school that maybe we took for granted before. So what about teachers and faculty and staff, I should say? What have been the kind of biggest challenges? And, uh, and then what are some of the silver linings or things that might may have influenced their teaching in positive ways? Well, teachers are not immune to anxiety either. And no. so the anxiety that the pandemic instilled in all of us about personal safety and the safety of loved ones and friends and family that has been an environment in which someone has to persevere and still do their job and still be selfless and consider their students. I mean, that's just been kind of the operating structure that we've all been a part of, which is yeah. which has been difficult. You remember at the beginning of the pandemic, people weren't sure how to get groceries, how to get toilet paper, how to get their basic needs met. And yeah. we were asking them to reinvent how they did their job over a course of four days. So so that's that's the first place to start. Given that we're working from home offices, we had faculty who were dealing with physical pain from sitting and not moving around. Mm -hmm. and, and so right. we had to help some people set up their home offices. One of the, the largest places of concern was for faculty who had small children at home in particular, who... Right. You know, they're like, I'm teaching my eighth and ninth grade science class, and I'm teaching second grade because I've got my son here who's trying to figure out elementary school on Zoom. Yeah. That was particularly challenging. There was no break. There, they were constantly making meals and providing snacks and redirecting their children. And their kids loved the fact that mom or dad was home all the time and didn't understand why they didn't have their attention, right? That separation between work and home didn't exist. And for young kids, that's hard to understand. So those were some of the issues that we had, in addition, of course, to the just figuring out how Zoom works and how, how yeah. do I engage students through a screen and how do I replicate what I used to do in my class? You know, we're not doing a fetal pig dissection, so how am I teaching biology during this unit? And what tools do I have at my disposal and how can we share resources? Those are some challenges for sure. And then what about, again, the silver linings? Are there aspects of virtual instruction that you think that, that can be taken from this time? We all want to go back and have teachers standing in front of a classroom and teaching classes again. Teachers want that, parents want that, and kids want that. But are there elements of this that we can retain moving forward in terms of the variety of teaching techniques that we can employ at the school? So I think there will be some staying power in a lot of the technology tools that faculty have used, that they've become accustomed to, that they've seen real value in. And there are a number of them that teachers have explored that I'm seeing that are used to, to great benefit in the classroom. So those may, may retain, whether those happened in a classroom experience where students are on their computers or whether it's at home and they are either filming something or interacting with a 
a slideshow or something of that nature, I think that those tech tools will remain in practice. The other thing that I was just talking to a teacher about yesterday was about her use of, of the chat feature and how students can now ask questions in the chat directly to the teacher without everyone seeing it, which may add a level of comfort in students taking risk and speaking mm. up or asking a question or admitting that they don't know something. And it allows teachers to pace their classes in the right way, to get what we call formative mm. assessment kind of along the way. How are students understanding this? How are students building their confidence by taking some more risk in a safe way so that then later they can build up to actually sharing out their experience or their thought right, or their opinion right. or those kinds of things. So, And also hearing everyone's voice at the same time. You just type it in the chat, boom, it all lists out pretty quickly, and you can you can hear from every student in a matter of seconds, where if you did that in class, they right. would all be speaking on top of each other or, or that kind of thing. So I think that there are some advantages to the way the classroom looks now that, that we will retain and that we will work to figuring out how to retain. Right. So now I want to get to you, John, uh, and kind of your upbringing and, and who some of the people in your life were who influenced you. So you grew up in Southern California, is that right? I did. I grew up in Huntington Beach. Great. And what do your parents do? What did they So do? my my mom has done a little bit of teaching. She was an elementary school teacher for a few years, and then she changed over to a career running the family business. My grandparents have an RV park in Orange, California. And so ah. she was the manager there for a number of years and uh, and still, though she's retired now, still checks in with the family business. So she she ran that. And my dad was a English teacher at Narbonne High School in Harbor City for his career, taught a little while in, huh. in middle school, but then spent the vast majority of his career uh, teaching high school English. Got it. So your parents, both educators, although your mom then transitioned to sort of managing this this family business. That's right. Yeah. And so you went to public school? Went to in public Huntington school. Beach. Yeah, had a great experience and you know, never knew any different. Uh, independent schools weren't really on my radar when I was growing up. I didn't have any friends who went to independent schools. I couldn't have named an independent school. I yeah. had some friends who went to Catholic school or other religiously affiliated schools. But other than that, it was you just went to the local public school. That was the kind of the norm. And I had a great experience, had good teachers, had a solid education. And what high school? Did you go to Huntington Beach High School, home of the Oilers? Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and were there teachers at that high school that influenced you? For sure, back then? yeah, many. And one that I point to most often was my freshman and junior year English teacher. His name was Harry Gordon, and I was fortunate to have him twice. He was really influential in my life, really influential in me deciding to be a teacher myself and English in particular. He was, he was a character who loved literature, introduced me in particular my junior year when we moved through American lit from deism and puritanism. It was, it was the isms, right? So we did deism, puritanism, hmm. transcendentalism, existentialism, modernism, I mean, all the way through and reading these masterworks in literature that were kind of eye-opening for me, inspiring for me. The way that he taught them was incredibly engaging, discussion-filled, taking critical looks at the works. But we also had a lot of fun. I remember when we read Streetcar Named Desire, and, and he must have been a frustrated actor himself because he always read Stanley <laughs> Kowalski and read it as Marlon Brando, which I didn't understand at the time why he was speaking in that <laughs> accent. But that was... 
particularly inspiring to be in his class and to be with him. And the, the thing that I have always appreciated about him is he held me and everyone else, but, but me to, to high standards. He didn't care mm. who I was, what else I had going on, whatever status I might have had as an athlete and whatever kind of benefit that may have afforded me elsewhere. You know, he expected me to be ready for class, having done the reading, having done the work, having something to say, and there was no taking the easy way out. And I've always appreciated that about him. And, and I think he helped me hold myself to a higher standard. And that's something that I've carried with me. Yeah. Is that something you, you because you're an English teacher uh, and you've been a teacher for a long time at Harvard Westlake. Do you think about that when you're teaching your class? Because, you know, we're a place with high standards. And I don't know if that has made you feel kind of at home at Harvard Westlake. It has. It has. There, you know, yeah. I think students hold themselves to high standards. Teachers hold themselves to high standards. We hold each other accountable. Yes, I think that's part of it. But more than that is the recollection of my sitting in Mr. Gordon's junior year English class and realizing in that moment that what he was doing for me was what I wanted my life's work to be. So I knew when I was a high huh. school English student that I wanted to be an English teacher. And it was wow. really wow. in his class where I, I decided that. I'd kind of set myself on the career path that was really because of the inspiration I felt. And so, hmm. yes, the standards, the high standards, that's all part of it. But <laughs> inspiration, the way that looking at character and theme and progression of an idea, how that can be inspiring, that's really what I, what I come back to more than anything else. Wow. And outside of your high school, were there influences in the kind of Huntington Beach area as you were growing up? Yeah, I think one of the major influences in, in my life, my family was very connected to our church and through my involvement in uh, the youth group and, and those kinds of places, there were other really positive influences in my life, particularly our preacher at the time who was named Paul Thomas. He used to run this class called the Young Men's Leadership Class. And it was through that class that I learned a lot about leadership and public speaking and service and all of the the ways that servant leadership can be a part of, of a leader. It's not just telling people what to do, but really taking care of them and yeah. finding out what they need and meeting those needs. And so I credit some of my leadership style and my leadership focus, even so far back as junior high when I was, was in that class. And you know, there was a time that I was so inspired there that I thought, well, maybe ministry is, is what I want to do. Wow. Huh. So that was another piece of, of putting together who I became and, and you know, what career I decided to pursue. But you were also an athlete. You sort of referenced it. You were a two-sport athlete, is that right, at Huntington Beach High School? I played three sports, actually. I played football, three. basketball, three. and volleyball. And uh, okay. yeah, it was a busy time. Some would say a different time when you could play multiple sports. I see a lot more concentration right. now on a, on a single sport, but I played three sports and loved it. I loved the idea that during football season, I was hyper-focused on football and then in mid-November transitioned to basketball and then to volleyball. They're different sports. I played with different people and the variety for me of the athleticism required and the nature of the games, that was, it was super fun. And so you were recruited as well? You were a recruited athlete? I was a recruited athlete. At that point? Yep. Uh, and football was my main sport. 
Yeah. And uh, a receiver, you were a receiver, right? So I was a wide receiver my junior year. I was a quarterback my senior year. And oh, okay. my college search was predicated on which colleges were interested in me playing football for them. I had had a dream <laughs> since I was in elementary school, eight years old, I started playing tackle football. And it was at that point that we started going to the Huntington Beach High School football games. And there was a guy who played for Huntington. His name was Danny Thompson. And when he graduated from Huntington, he went to UCLA. I was already a UCLA fan. It was just a, a <laughs> confluence of, of everything that I loved. And so I had made the decision then that I was going to go play for Terry Donahue at UCLA and that that was going to be my my path. Yeah, yeah. And it didn't quite work out that way. Uh, UCLA was not as interested in my playing football there as I was in playing there. And so, but I ended up being recruited by a number of schools. And the recruiting process, is, as you may know, is really kind of a funny game. And so colleges would come and go and they would seem very interested and then not very interested. And yeah. there were schools who didn't quite know what to do with me. Where was I going to play? He's got some athletic ability, but he's not really a quarterback and he's played some wide receiver, maybe defensive back. And so all of that was interesting to see it how, how it unfolded. But to, to kind of cut to the ending, I can remember sitting in my senior year physics class with Mr. James and my football coach ducked his head in and said, hey, the, the Princeton football coach is here to see you. And I, you know, mm. we're in physics class. I should have been studying physics, right? So this just gives you a little bit of a sense of what was happening. <laughs> and my physics teacher was like, well, you should go, go talk to that guy. And I remember standing in the hallway with my coach, uh, the Princeton coach was waiting in the, the, the office. And I said, has he seen my transcript? Has he seen my SAT scores? Because I don't want to be wasting anyone's time here. And Princeton may be a little bit beyond my reach. And he's no, he's seen it all. And he, he's seen film and he wants to talk to you. So that was the beginning of the recruitment from Princeton, which continued over a series of months. And I was able to take a visit, do the whole recruiting thing. And, and that's, where, that's where I ended up. So you go to Princeton to play football. Did you think about walking on and playing volleyball or basketball or club or any of that? Or was your kind of focus... Football starts early, right? So you're there probably in August. Exactly. Right before your freshman year training. Yes, football right? starts early. So, and that was my main focus. I actually didn't know much about the volleyball program at the time. I was I was headed there to, to to play football. I had reached out to the volleyball coach. I wasn't sure if I'd be able to play two sports or not. And but I'd reached out, never heard anything back. I didn't actually know if it was a club team or a varsity team or what the situation was, but I was there to play football. And my football experience was, was a little lacking. Mm. And, and college football for me was very different than high school football in terms of the all-in, all-encompassing experience that, that I had playing football at Princeton. It was meetings and weightlifting and, uh, of course, the practice and the travel and the games. And, and I was very fortunate in terms of the first year I was there was the first year that freshmen were eligible to play varsity football. For years, the Ivy League mm. had had freshman football, and first year college students weren't eligible to play with the varsity. And so it was the first year freshmen were, were eligible. I was fortunate enough. I made the varsity team. I actually made the travel squad, ended up second on the depth chart at free safety. And yet, all of the things I had achieved just still wasn't leading to a sense of fulfillment, satisfaction. And it was at the end of that, that year that I thought, I, I just don't know if, if this 
is the right fit for me. So I decided to yeah. step away from football. My grades had suffered a little bit because of the energy and time dedicated to football, and I wanted to make sure that was the focus. And at that time, again, I reached out to the volleyball coach. I actually had a kind of a rival of mine from high school who I played against, who I knew was at the school and had played volleyball, so I reached out to him as well. And I got paired up with uh, the volleyball team, went to a tryout of sorts, and ended up playing volleyball all four years, and that was an incredible wow. experience. Uh, so mm. not what I had expected, but athletics had been such a big part of my life. The fact that that could continue beyond football, which, by the way, was somewhat of a devastating loss. Hmm. Started playing tackle football at eight years old. My mom had told me there were two things that her sons were never to do, play football and ride a motorcycle. She gave <laughs> in on the football. And, <laughs> and I'll tell you, I wanted to quit football a week after I had started it because it wasn't, I wasn't getting to do touchdown dances and you know catch passes. I was just conditioning. We were bear crawling and we were running wind sprints yeah. and, and all the rest. And it was my mom who had said I wasn't allowed to play football who said, fine, Jonathan, you can, you can quit football, but you have to call the coach and tell him. And because I was too mm -hmm. scared to call the coach, uh, I stuck with it. And you know, there I was 10 years later at Princeton, having that been really the, the linchpin toward my admission. I don't think there's more than... Uh, one way to look at that, really. And so leaving football behind uh, was, was difficult for me. It was difficult for my family to kind of come to grips with. And I, I'm just so fortunate that volleyball was there to be yeah. a big part of that college athletic experience that I so wanted and, and really needed. And was adapting to kind of, because you, you, know, you and I are similar in this way. We both went to big public high schools in Southern California and then traveled across the country and went to Princeton, a very That's different right. environment. Was the switch to sort of this East Coast Ivy League fall environment, you, you're not loving playing football, but you're also in this new world that's very, very different and was adapting to that world, making it also difficult that you couldn't quite find your thing quite Absolutely. yet? Absolutely. Absolutely. That was, yeah. that was a big part of it. I referenced the conversation I had with my coach about has the Princeton coach seen my scores and my grades? And then my next question was, where's Princeton? <laughs> <laughs> right. So right. New Jersey, okay. I, it was not a, a school that was on my radar. I, I had never had aspirations of going to an Ivy League school or a school on the East Coast, uh, as many of uh, Harvard-Westlake students do. And so being there, the only student from my high school, I was very much a fish out of water. I had uh, yeah. I'd never really been on the East Coast before. I had never been around colder climates before. You know, I mentioned not really knowing people who'd gone to independent school, and yet there I was dropped into college with people who had been to boarding school and had lived on their own for years, and they just had a maturity and a worldliness and an awareness that I didn't have. It took a lot of getting used to and feeling comfortable and finding my people. And yeah, that was, that was difficult. That, that, you know, freshman fall was not easy from a football standpoint, from a social standpoint, academically, it wasn't the entry into college that sometimes you hear about of, oh, this is the best yeah. time of your life and it's sure. going to kick off and it's going to be amazing. And it was, it was very different than what I was used to. That's for sure. Well, and, and fortunately you found volleyball. So that's one thing, but were there other people, were, were there perhaps a, a professor or, or 
other folks in the community that influenced you while at Princeton? Yes, and the thing that was consistent for me and my Princeton experience was the quality of education. Education I got from professors who were amazing, quality of education I got from my peers who in discussion groups were just as influential in my learning as a, as a professor. But there was one professor in particular, an English professor named Larry Danson, who was a Shakespeare expert, and I took four classes from Professor Danson, I wow. think. First one was my freshman year. We were all required to take a writing course, and, and so I took his course for the first time, and that's where I was introduced to him. And what I loved about his course is, as you know, in, in Shakespeare, there are plenty of lines and moments that people can interpret in really opposite ways. Does it mean this or does it mean that? And that, that's the beauty of, of Shakespeare and the way he uses language. And Professor Danson had a way of talking about both sides of the argument and somehow coming to the conclusion that both were true. And of course, hmm. when you perform Shakespeare, you make a choice and you know, the actor, the director gets a, a say in the meaning and, and how the play is going to feel as a whole. But Professor Danson was just as inspiring as, as Mr. Gordon was when I was in, in high school. But the way that Professor Danson put me on my career path is, I think because I was so inspired by him, I can remember having a conversation with him. He was an advisor for a junior paper that I wrote. And after we were finished talking about my paper, he had just getting to know me and talking about what I might like to do after I graduate. And I said to him, well, I think I'm, I might like to do what you do, be a, be a college professor. And he looked me in the eye and he said, no, you don't. <laughs> he, said, he said, what you want to do is you want to go teach high school English. You want to coach football. You want to go do that life. You don't want my life hmm. of, you know, in the stacks of the library, researching, writing. He explained that what he did kind of outward facing to students was actually a small percentage of what his job mm. and what his expectations mm. were as a Princeton professor. And he said, if you really want to teach, you probably don't want to be a college professor, at least in the, in the, in the way that he was asked to be a college professor. And, and so that, that kind of righted my ship a little bit. I thought, oh, yeah, you're probably right, that maybe where I want to <laughs> yeah. be is with, uh, with younger kids, where the focus is on teaching and, and maybe doing some coaching as well. And so after college, you, you didn't, I know you came to Harvard West like earlier in your career, but you started at a school in New England. Is that right? Is that where you went initially? I did. You know, I, I said I, I knew as a junior in high school that I wanted to be a teacher, and yet yeah. I was a little slow to get on the, the job-seeking train, a little slower than I should have been, slower than my family would have yeah. liked me to have been, partly because I was writing my senior thesis, and so I was locked away in my carol. And if you're not going into investment banking or consulting, there's not really... <laughs> People aren't really reaching out to you to give you jobs. People don't necessarily. It is true. I was waiting for the, the yeah. teacher recruiting hiring fair that just never materialized. Yeah. Um, yeah, they don't have the resources of McKinsey exactly. and, and Bain to just come and knock on your door and say, do you want Exactly. So, but you did. So I did. You found yourself yep. in I, I uh, connected with, you know, it was a friend that I had made at, at Princeton. He was a graduate student and he knew a guy who worked at a boarding school in New Hampshire that I had never heard of before. And he actually hooked me up with a, summer teaching job. It's a pretty academically focused summer school program um, at this school called Cardigan Mountain School in New Hampshire. So I taught there during the summer. I spent part of that summer going on job interviews, and I think I went 0 for 4 at boarding schools in the New England area, coming up huh. empty with jobs. And That's surprising. Yeah, well, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's what it was, and uh, yeah. 
I tend to think these things happen for a reason. And, and whether sure. Cardigan felt sorry for me or maybe they saw <laughs> something in me that, that had potential, they went ahead and offered me a job. And so I stayed there for the full school year and taught English and world geography. And I coached three sports and I was a dorm affiliate and you know did uniform inspections and room inspections and the whole deal. It was a junior boarding school, sixth through ninth grade, 180 boarding students. So tiny and you know skewing younger than, than the normal boarding school. So you talk about my experience going from Huntington Beach to Princeton, New Jersey, being a fish out of water. Now you take me up to New Hampshire, a place I'd never spent time before in a boarding school setting that I'd only read about in books and seen on Dead Poets Society and really knew nothing about. And I'm 22 years old taking care of these adolescent boys who really need kind of a father figure. It was bizarre and yet so enriching to my life um, mm -hmm. And to my work experience, mm -hmm. I, I learned so much about myself, about how to teach, about how to work with young people. I worked really, really hard. It is, I, I, have, I have said, I'll never work as hard as I did that year at Cardigan. It's, you know, 5.30 in the morning to 11 o'clock at night, you're on. But I, I loved it and still have close relationships, even though I only spent a year there, close relationships with, with people who, who I taught with that year. So then you came out to Harvard-Westlake from there, is that right? I did. Yeah, I, I, you know, middle of that year when the weather kicked in and the skies were gray and the ice storm started, <laughs> I thought maybe going back west would be a good idea. So I remember flipping through, must have been a print manual at the time of the CAIS schools. I was also looking at schools in Colorado where my brother lived and I just sent letters cold to any school that seemed like it might be a good fit. I got a fortunate response from Mr. Hudnut at Harvard-Westlake. And again, even though I was from Southern California, a school I didn't know much about. And, yeah. uh, and it all kind of unfolded from there. And you, we should say, just in the interest of time, you came to Harvard-Westlake, you were what, a middle school English teacher, you became middle school dean, upper school dean, then head of the middle school now for many, many years. I'm curious over that time, who were the people kind of within Harvard-Westlake who you would include kind of as mentors? Because you've had different types of experiences, both campuses, leadership positions, but you've maintained this foot in the classroom as a teacher. Before we leave, who are the folks within Harvard-Westlake? There's so many. I have to yeah. I have to say there are so many. I, I came to Harvard-Westlake at 23 years old and knew virtually nothing about teaching and certainly nothing about leading a school. Yeah. So the, the people from early in my career that were influential, people like Ellen Ehrlich, who was the head of the English department at the time, a veteran teacher who taught me how to teach, taught me how to lesson plan, taught me how to create a literature-focused classroom that has analytical writing as its foundation. Greg Gonzalez, who I coached football with for a number of years, who was also a dean. And when I became a dean, he was someone I leaned on heavily to understand that work and how to juggle all the responsibilities. A really kind of formative experience for me working with Greg. Gene Hybrex, who was head of the middle school while I was a, a middle school dean and an upper school dean, who, you know, when I look at kind of work ethic and putting the school first, that's someone who I admire. Certainly Tom Hudnut, who was an icon of leadership yeah. and vision and, and all the rest. And then more recently, working with people like Liz Resnick, 
who was yeah. someone who came to us with experiences outside of Harvard-Westlake. And that view was really important, how she wrestled with tough decisions and made tough decisions and consulted people and uh, was inclusive in that process. That was a model for me. That, so, so many people along the way, I'm, I'm truly inspired by the people I get to work with every day. It's, uh, it's, you know, we keep learning, we keep growing, and we do it together. And I should mention you also met your wife at Harvard-Westlake, which I imagine was influential as well. That was influential, <laughs> yeah, for sure, right? I think we were both kids who came to Harvard-Westlake not thinking we would stay long-term. And you're right, we met in the English department, and eventually she was willing to go on a date with me, and, <laughs> and, and maybe I kind of wore her down to an extent where here we are. Now we're married. Both of our kids are at Harvard-Westlake, uh, right. seventh and eighth grade. That's a remarkable part of the story, right? When I think about all the things that I owe Harvard-Westlake, there isn't really an aspect of my current life that hasn't been touched, influenced, provided for by Harvard-Westlake. And certainly my family is included in that. So before we go, as you know, because you listen, you're a listener to the supporting cast. I am. I really I'm a big fan. It. This is a thrill. Um, Thank you. There are, are, are three standard questions, as you know, as part of the supporting cast. The first of which is, what is John Wimbish's favorite movie? My favorite movie? I, I'm going to go with Field of Dreams. And oh. Field of Dreams is a favorite of mine because it has all the elements that that kind of get to me. It has... You know, people who strive against the odds, people who dream, right? You got Moonlight Graham, you've got literature yeah. there. Um, right. And then, of course, you've, you've got fathers and sons. And if I continue talking about this, you'll, you'll hear me start to choke up a bit because if you could just say, hey, dad, have a catch, and I will start to bawl. Uh, so I can't, I can't watch it without turning no. up. It's yeah, so that, that, that moment. It's the, and the, the James Old Jones' speech about baseball and the constant in our lives. And, and uh, you know, I feel that when I walk into Anaheim Stadium and I, I'm ready to sit down and watch my angels play. And, you know, the father and son thing, you know, that gets me. We didn't have a chance to, to share much about my dad, but he is by far the most influential teacher in my life uh, in, in terms mm -hmm. of what he has meant for me, becoming an English teacher, love of literature, our dinner table was uh, like an annex of our of my English class. He read every single paper, marked it up, sent me back upstairs to re rewrite it. <laughs> I learned so much from him about how to teach, about how to think, about how to be, how to analyze literature. So the father son piece there, it gets me. That is in my I think top five of all time as well. Field of Dreams. I love that movie and tear up at the exact same moment. That's great. What's your favorite meal? in Los Angeles. Could be a restaurant, something you and Amanda make at home. So my favorite meal probably is, uh, well, I'll give you two because they're so different. One is Friday night scrambled eggs. We have huh. breakfast for dinner every Friday night. Eggs really? and bacon. Wow. We eat it in front of the TV and, you know, it's just a way to cap the week. Friday night, you know, beginning of the weekend, we kick our feet up and uh, for whatever reason, it's, it's, it's always scrambled eggs. So that's, that's a favorite of mine because it's family oriented and it yeah. just feels comfortable. Out and about, our, our favorite meal is uh, at Saddle Peak Lodge. It's kind of our anniversary destination. It's a restaurant, an old hunting lodge out in uh, Santa Monica Mountains in Malibu Canyon. And it feels like you're out of the city or you're, you're hmm. out in the woods. And uh, so that's our, our go-to special occasion restaurant. It's great. What's your favorite place in LA? Would it be somewhere similar in the Santa Monica Mountains? Or We do love to hike. Yeah. And, and so Santa Monica Mountains certainly comes to mind. But, but I think the 
you know, when you think about LA, I guess what I would go with are small concert venues, places that we like to go to see live music. So Hotel Cafe or McCabe's Guitar Shop for, you know, kind of intimate live music with bands we like that come through where you feel an interaction. I always say when I leave those places, that was good for the soul. And uh, so yeah. going, going to see some live music at, at one of those small venues. I love the Greek theater too and the Hollywood Bowl and the, and the bigger places, but, you know, especially with the open air. But the small, more intimate venues are, they're really cool. Agree. I spent a lot of time at Hotel Cafe in my I'm 20s. I'm sure you I did. I love, love that place and highly recommend it. Last question. As you mentioned, you have two kids who are now at Harvard-Westlake. So you're not only running the school and teaching, you're a parent at the middle school as well. As you know, I have a two-year-old daughter. What is your best parenting advice? Sounds like your parents and your dad in particular was such a huge influence. What have you tried to pass forward to your kids and what could you pass forward to, to me trying to raise mine? Well, the first place to start is my advice would be be wary of parenting advice. <laughs> That's my, my first piece of advice because okay. parenting choices are so individualized. I can sit in front of a group of parents. I, I, I give parenting advice for a living sometimes when we have right, parent right. coffees and those kinds of things. And often I'm saying something about an adolescent experience or how we should work with kids. And I'll, I'll catch someone's eye and think, ooh, what I just said, that's not what that person needed to hear because their child is a little different than maybe yeah. the norm or the, the, the advice that I was just giving. So, so that's my first piece of advice. But if you're looking for something that I've found helpful in my own parenting, I guess it's answer the questions that are asked of you. You know, parents often wonder, well, when is the right time to talk about this subject or to, to mm. uh, address this certain thing that they're curious about? And I have found that by answering their questions and asking them questions right back to ask you know, them to consider the topic and what do you think of that, it's going to hopefully lead them to understand what they need to know in that time that they have questions about and also to do the critical thinking themselves so that they are able to develop their own thoughts and ideas. And so I would say answer their questions and ask good questions in return. That is very good advice, both actually, (laughs) (laughs) to not take advice and to, well, because every kid is different. And sometimes kids just, they are who they are and they show up a certain way. And sometimes it's a little bit more about Nature than nurture, and that's right. So every kid reacts to things differently. That's right, yeah, and I would so. be particularly wary of anyone who wants to give you unsolicited advice, um, <laughs> right. especially continuously uh, giving you unsolicited advice. Right. So you hear a lot about, oh, you've got to do this, you've got to do this yeah. thing. Oh, have you done this yet? You haven't done that. Oh my goodness, you're way behind. Right. And, yeah. and the anxiety level goes up and up and up. Uh, so just yes. you know, be wary of that. Well, thank you so much, John. Uh, I am never weary of your <laughs> advice or counsel, and uh, nor are, are any of our teachers or students. So we really appreciate all the work you've done to kind of transform our campus virtually over the past year and to kind of keep spirits up within our teachers and our families. So thank you for the time. It's really my pleasure. It. it was great to be with you. 